You are listening to a message from Renewal Fellowship, a gospel-centered community that seeks to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ for the renewal of East Johannesburg. To connect with us, check out our website on www.renewalfellowship.co.za. We pray that God would be at work as you listen to this sermon. Psalm 73, uh, and it reads as follows. Uh, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people... Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and, my, and washed my hands in innocence. For all the, all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of our children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them into into slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in the moment swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream uh, when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them in patterns. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. This is God's word. Thank you very much for that, Toby. As Toby said, my name is Kuriso, and I am part of Renewal Fellowship. Um, so when, when Sisla brought up the idea or the possibility of us doing this, uh, initially, or having this conversation about doubts, initially it was in a different context, different format. And when he texted me, my heart sank, first of all. 
And then he came back later on and he said, hey, listen, I want to change things around a bit. And um, I, want, I want you to do it as part of the Sunday service. Initially, it was going to be midweek. Now I want you to do it as part of the Sunday service. My heart sank again. So twice, my heart sank before this moment. And as, uh, as Toby said, uh, I'm going to need a lot of grace before my heart sinks again. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, as, as Toby mentioned, just to reiterate what Toby mentioned, we are going through a series called Exploring Christianity, which obviously we're exploring some of the aspects of, some of the, some of the significant parts of um, what it means to be a Christian and how Christianity answers some of the difficult questions when navigating this life. And um, in week one, we, we, we focused on Christianity and meaning. And what does the Christian faith have to say about meaning? How can we derive meaning in this world? And then in week two, we focused, which was last week, we focused on Christianity and suffering. What does Christianity have to say with our experiences of suffering? And those were, again, if you have, if you have not listened to those uh, sermons, I would encourage you to listen to them because they are significant and fundamental in helping us navigate daily life as a Christian. Now today, we will be focusing on doubt. Uh, as mentioned earlier, we'll be focusing on what Christianity or faith and doubt. What does our Christian faith have to say about the inevitable experiences of doubt that we will encounter in this life? Um, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, I'm, I may add. Um, Christianity, does Christianity give us any sort of resources or guidance uh, in this, to navigate these particular moments, or are we left to figure them out by ourselves? Um, and in part, I think, I, think, I think we are privileged to be living in the 21st century because what we do have access to is a ton of information. All you have to do is a simple Google search, and you'll probably find the answers of the questions that you have. It doesn't take that much effort nowadays to find an answer. Uh, blog posts, podcasts, opinion pieces, scientific theses, whatever the case may be. I think Sitler often calls them the gurus, um, the gurus of this world. It's, it's very easy to find an answer. Um, but what we're exploring, I mean, given the fact that we're in a Christian context, um, what does, what's the biblical posture when it comes to the experiences of doubt? Does the Bible actually address our doubts? And doubt is often complex. Um, it's nuanced. It's a, it's, it's a very nuanced and emotional, and emotional and psychological experience. And oftentimes it's a combination of both. Sometimes it's emotional, sometimes emotionally, sometimes it's psychological or intellectual, sometimes it's a combination of everything. Does the Bible actually speak to that? Um, you know, doubt doesn't come in like a nice little box with a nice present and say, hey, here's your doubt, you know? Um, it often shakes our world and causes us to sleep and fall, as we'll see later on in the text that we're focusing on. Um, but when these experiences do come along, I think there are a number of options p- before us. Either we can stick our heads in the sand, pretend the question doesn't exist, the doubts don't exist, and just move on with life naively. Or perhaps you did try and engage. You did try to answer the questions. And I guess in a Christian context, in a faith context, you, you asked your, your faith community these questions. And they told you, we don't ask those questions here. You know, they dismissed you. It's like, just, just, just shut up and believe. You know, those, those things do happen. Yeah. Or you become extremely overwhelmed. You don't know how to navigate these moments. Um, these are possibilities. I, I think maybe some of us have experienced these, 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 these possibilities. And there could be way more of them. I, I can't mention all of them. Um, but I think we will find that the biblical story as a whole, uh, particularly this, uh, this psalm that we'll be focusing on, that it offers a very sophisticated response to the inevitable, suffer- the inevitable reality of doubt. 
And if we pay attention, I think we will be better for it. If we pay attention. Doubt, you know, uh, doubt, um, this was significant for me in my learning when I learned that doubt is actually not a third to faith, to a confession of faith. It does not have to be a third to your confession of faith. But if you don't pay attention, if you are naive and you dismiss the question, it will become a major stumbling block. Um, Cicla last week uh, said that, uh, uh, don't be surprised when, the, when, when suffering comes along, you know, when you do suffer, because it's inevitable. I think the same is true for doubt. Don't be surprised when these questions come along. Um, uh, in fact, uh, Timothy Keller, who I think was a, is a significant um, intellectual uh, role model of mine, um, he said that uh, the reality of doubt, if you're blind to the reality of doubt, you will find yourself paralyzed in the face of a fear skeptics. When people ask questions, if you don't engage your doubt, people will come ask you questions and you will be paralyzed. And in fact, it continues in another, in another, in another context. It says that even when you do deal with your doubts, what you will find that as time goes, as, as you move along, as you grow older, new doubts will appear. So it's almost as if doubt will never end. You will, you will find, you will have a particular doubt or a particular question. You will address that question, God willing, and then later on in life, a new doubt will arise. So doubt is a constant in our life, if I can put it that way. Um, so how do we deal with this? Um, I think, uh, so before, I guess, once, before we dig deep into the text, um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Reflections on the Psalms. And in it, he's got a chapter in there, it's, it's called um, A Word About Praising. And in that chapter, he recounts that as he was becoming Christian, or as he was contemplating becoming a Christian, and even after becoming a Christian, there was one thing, he calls it a stumbling block, there was one thing that was a major stumbling block to him. And this was this persistent demand from believers, as well as the Bible itself, that you should praise God. And he could not fathom why on earth is this demand from the worshippers, as well as from God himself. As you look throughout the Psalms, there's always this constant theme, praise God, praise God, praise God. And that was a major stumbling block to him. And part of the reason why it was a major stumbling block is because if you have, if you have friends or whatever kind, colleagues or whatever the case may be, and they keep on saying, hey, praise me, you're going to find that very odd, very peculiar. It's like, is this person, number one, insecure? Or does this person have a high view of themselves that they always demand that this praise? You know? So when, when he was, became a Christian, he was wrestling through this, to him it was like, hey, hang on a minute, does this Christian God, is he, does he either have an overinflated view of himself that he demands praise, or is he that insecure that he demands praise? That was a major stumbling block to him. But as he was wrestling and trying to make sense of it all and figure it out, he came up, he, he said this about it uh, when, when he resolved the situation. And this is, in, again, Reflection on the Psalms, which I think I would recommend everybody to read. It's a significant book. But he says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses and, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon a mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin of can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scott Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall find that when these, we shall, we shall then know that these are the same thing, 
fully to enjoy is to glorify and commanding us to glorify him. God is inviting us to enjoy him. This is, this, he came to this realization after wrestling with the doubts. He didn't just stumble upon it in some random whatever. He came to this realization after wrestling with the, and that's when it sticks, after those moments of tensions. And so as we, I think that, that is the general theme of, I think, what we're going to be exploring today. And I think we'll find it in, in Psalm 73 as well, with Asaph. Um, and now Asaph, I know we're not going to be doing a biblical exposition, but Asaph is a very significant character in the Bible. And, and, and just so that we get the gravity and the weight of this, past, of this poem, I do want us to, just for a little bit, uh, just remember who Asaph is. Now, Asaph is first uh, recorded in, I think, Second uh, First Chronicles, um, when David returns the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, after he brings it back to Israel. And David appoints um, uh, temple worshippers to help worship in the temple. So, and Asaph was one of those temple worshippers. He's often called, he's a Levi, he's a descendant of Levi, so that's why he's working in the temple. Um, and uh, Asaph reigned or worshipped in the temple, was a worship leader, as, as it were, in the temple from David's reign until his son uh, Solomon's reign. I think he may have uh, also overseen some of the, when the nation split. Um, so Asaph is witnessing everything that's happening in Israel, right? And uh, it, I think in our contem- contemporary setting, as I mentioned, we would say he's a worship leader. And I think for our modern sensibilities, this is not someone who doubts. Because, one, he's a worship leader. He's got it all figured out. That's why he's in the temple worshiping. Or, number two, he just blindly believes. He doesn't ask questions. He just believes. He just follows their trend. He is an Israelite, after all. He grew up in an environment being told that God is good. You know, the, the, the stories that were being recounted of uh, Israel's salvation from Egypt. So, to I think our modern sensibilities, he's not someone who doubts. But you'll find, as, as was read in Psalm 73, that actually he goes through a lot. In fact, if you read uh, from Psalm 73, uh, Psalm 73 falls within the Psalms, what they call, well, the Psalms is divided into five parts, book one, book two, book three. You often see in, in the Psalms, it says, hey, book three. In fact, if you look at Psalm 73, before it starts, it says book three. It's starting a new section of the Psalms. And the next 11 Psalms, poems, are all Asaph. And if you read those poems, you'll see the emotional complexity that he's wrestling with before God. This is not just someone who blindly believes. He's witnessing real life, and that affects him. Um, and so, if we, you know, if we dig in, let's, if we dig in now, uh, read with me Psalm 73, verse 1 to 2. This is, how awesome, uh, this is how the psalm starts. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. That's how Asaph starts, or that's how the poem starts. Truly God is good. If you have been around Christians for long enough, uh, Christian subculture, particularly uh, uh, the charismatic environment, there's often a phrase that is quite popular. It goes, God is good? All the time. time. Exactly. That's what Asaph is saying here. It's a sort of creed. It's like, truly God is good to Israel. He grew up hearing this all this time. And then he starts, he says, as for me, my feet nearly slipped. Sometimes we do say those words very flippantly. God is good. And we don't take the time to recognize the tension that is happening in our hearts and minds. And that's what Asaph recognizes here. Um, and, and this point, you know, as for me, guys, you may believe that, but right now I'm a bit, I'm struggling with that, uh, 
with that, with, that, with that statement that God is good. I'm struggling with that statement. Now, you can give a technical definition of, of, of doubt, which I think would be appropriate in most contexts. Um, if you look it up in Oxford Dictionary, it's often say, you know, it says, doubt is a feeling or of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. Um, uh, but the way Asaph describes his, this doubt, in fact, you, the, the word doubt never appears in this, in this psalm. But from his experience, you, you know what, you can tell what is, what's going through his mind and heart. You know, he says, this is how he defines it, this experience. He says, my, verse 2 and 3, my feet, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my step nearly slipped. My feet had almost stumbled and my step nearly slipped. Um, as, as I grew up in Venda, of course, I'm Venda. And uh, in primary school, um, uh, when, we, when we used to go to school, our parents, my parents, uh, obviously, they, 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 they ordered or they paid for transport to pick us up to school and take us home and so forth and so forth. But the transport didn't come pick us up at home. We had to walk from home to the bus stop and then, because there were a bunch of kids that were being picked up and then to school and then back again from the bus stop back to home. And um, this is not a sad story, by the way. Um, but as you're walking to, to the bus stop to catch, to catch the transport to school, oftentimes in the warmer months when it's raining, uh, obviously, it, there's mud. And the vendor soil is very, it's the red in nature, so it becomes very muddy. Now, if you don't have rain boots, you, you're probably going to slip as you're walking to school. And you're going to be scared as, you, as you're walking, like, oh, I'm going to get my uniform dirty. And so you have, to be, you have to watch your step. I think that's what Asaf is saying here. My feet almost slipped. But why did his feet almost slip? Um, and, and this speaks to, I think, our sources of doubt, the things that cause us to slip and lose focus or something like that. But why, why, did, why did Asa's feet slip? Um, in verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's jealous. Who would have thought jealousy would cause you to sleep? I don't, in, in, in all the conversations that I had or environments I've been in, I don't think I ever recall someone leaving the faith and saying that because they were jealous. He was envious. He saw the prosperity of the wicked and he was envious. He doesn't lie to himself. He doesn't try and say, oh, actually, if I, if I work a little bit harder and get more money, I'll be able to buy the things that I want. I'll be able to take that trip to France. He was envious. But also I think he recognized that the wicked are not supposed to live lavishly. He grew up being told that God is good, that God, that God will punish the unjust. You know, he will not allow the unjust to go unpunished. But if he looks around, hang on a moment. It seems like it's the unjust who are succeeding in life. They're not suffering, they're not in pain. And here am I, faithful. He does say, you know, he does say later on that in, in vain I have kept my heart pure. Because he's looking around, he's seeing that and just living lavishly. He wants to live like them. And that's the source of his sleeping. That's the source of his doubting that God is good to Israel. Um, and, and I think from verse from, from verse 4 to 12, which I won't read all of it, but he does go through this process of just detailing 
So someone says in verse 3 is like the headline, and then verse 4 to 12 goes on detailing all these things that he's witnessing around him that is causing him to slip and lose his footing. He says, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. Um, uh, after, after I went to high school, um, and, and obviously moving to Joburg and things like that, uh, if you grew up with your grandparents at, or your grandparents around, um, you know that I think this is true for most people. We'll go home over the school holidays or if you take leave from work. And um, my grandmother would, would often say to us, my siblings, like, oh, my child, you're so thin. Are you eating? <laughs> Are you eating, my child? You know? And then two or three weeks later, when you do leave, she says, now you see. You know, you've eaten the pup. Now you see. You are, you are fed now. You know, that, I think being fat and sleek and, 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 and sleek, yeah, is like a sign of health. In my grandmother's eyes, when she saw me thin, it's like, you're suffering. But when she saw me fat, it's like, <laughs> perfect. And I think if you grew up with your grandparents, you'll know that. I think this is true for most people. Um, this is what Asaf is witnessing. They ha- Therefore, pride is their necklace. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They scoff and speak with malice. They set their mouths against heavens. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. That, 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 is, a, that is a profound experience. And he, he's, he's not, again, he's not lying to himself. He's not trying to pretend that everything is well with the world. He recognizes this. He grew up on these scriptures, on these Jewish scriptures. He knows that the, how the world is supposed to be. And now there's a major disconnect between what he believes and what he sees around him. Um, and, and I think, as, mu- as, mu- as much as this is a self-experience, I don't think we can limit it to, 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 these, to these particular moments. There's so many things in our own stories, in your own stories, that have caused you to slip and lose your foothold in your faith. You could be asking, God, if you love me, why am I suffering this disease? I thought you said if, 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 if I believe in you and trust in you, it'll go well with me. Yeah? You'll renew my strength. But here I am suffering. Why am I not married? Why can't I have children? Why am I unemployed? These are genuine and difficult experiences that we go through. And they will cause you to sleep if, you're not, if you don't pay attention. But we have to wrestle with them. But, and it's a messy wrestle. It's not, it's not clean, guys. It really is not clean. Um, you know, in the presence of evil and suffering in the world, if you, are, if, you are, if you pay attention, you know, if God is so good and so powerful, why is there evil and injustice in the world? Why can't innocent people pain f- live pain-free? I mean, in part, this is what Asaf is referring to. Um, if you are, I think uh, uh, some of you perhaps are Marvel fans, others are DC fans. If you are DC inclined, um, uh, DC Comics, there's a, there's a movie called Batman and Superman. And in that movie, there's a scene where Lex Luthor, the, the antagonist, um, has, has, has uh, Superman face to face. So Superman is seen as this like, godlike figure within the DC comic because it's so powerful. And this is what Lex Luthor says to Superman. He says, you know, or, or rather, before he gets to that part, he, he lays a major complaint. He's like, who was there to save me when my, when my, when my father beat me? He's complaining, so this is the source of his anger. You know, no one was there to save me when when my father was beating me up as a kid. And he says, if God is all good, he cannot be all powerful. 
If he's all powerful, he cannot be all good. In fact, I think, I think the, the, the full quote continues and says, and if God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? This is Lex Luthor obviously asking the question in the context of a cinematic universe. But, in fact, many people have taken these words upon their lips. Uh, the late Josephus Machaiser, when he was critiquing Christianity and religious faith, he took these words upon his lips. Many people have taken these words upon their lips. And if, and if we don't wrestle with them, they will cause you to stumble. Because these are genuine questions. Um, the rich get richer and the poor are getting poorer. You know, as of course, these are the wicked, always at ease, the increase in riches. It could be also that um, you're seeing the world around you, you're seeing those of us who call ourselves Christians and uh, are proponents of the faith being the source of pain and suffering in the world. We take advantage of vulnerable and proof of wars, slavery, and all sorts of things. But these are the followers of God. How can that be? I thought you were supposed to be the good people. You see spiritual leaders abuse, excuse me, abusing the vulnerable members of society and community, the people they're meant to care for. And when these questions come up, they, it's swept under the rug. It's like, he's a man of God. These are real experiences. Oh, Christianity is a white man's religion. It was brought over to enslave us Africans. That's a classic one, eh? But those are genuine questions. You have to wrestle with them. Or they will, call you, they will cause you to sleep. Or you are, obviously, we live in the 21st century. Uh, you could be struggling to reconcile the biblical story, the biblical account of the world, versus the scientific account of the world. Because at face value, these things clash. Yeah. You, uh, Yuval, Noah Yuval Harari, who he wrote the book um, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, he calls this like, he says, religious faith is a fairy tale or fictional story. Because it's not something that you can interrogate with a microscope. And that could be a, that could be a ma- major source of doubt and slippery. And, and I think, for my, I mean, Toby mentioned that uh, in part, I've also wrestled with, uh, with, with these questions in, in part. But, um, and when I did, rather, uh, I, I, I had, uh, I think, a typical South African story is that you graduate from, from uh, tertiary education and then you're unemployed for a while. So that was me. I was unemployed for about 18 months. And, uh, and obviously, you wrestle with all sorts of stuff. But thankfully, thankfully, at some point, I got a, I think they, call them internships, learnerships at the time. I don't know if they still use those words, that language. I got an internship, a 10-month internship, and my internship, uh, the, the people that I got me sent me to my previous employer. And even that was a contra- on a contractual basis. Okay, we'll give you 10 months as well to show if you can do what you can do. And thankfully, my previous employer then um, uh, gave me a permanent contract, so the whole unemployment part was sorted, thankfully. Um, and, but in that moment, what happened was, uh, at some point, my manager, uh, I got put into a team of five, a new team was being created, my manager resigned, and another person resigned, and then another person relocated back to India, used to work in India. And then I was the only one left at that particular point in time who was working on a project that was regulatory in nature, and you know the financial industry, there's a lot of regulatory demands. Hey, we have to meet you know, all these Reserve Bank uh, uh, regulatory standards. And then my new manager, the one who was appointed, said, came to me and said, hey, listen, Kuri, so um, as you can see, the people who know the ins and outs of this project have left. You're the only one left. I know you don't know much, but can you help 
lead this project? And I said, yes. I said, okay, this is a good trajectory. Unemployment, contract, permanent, leading a project. That seems like a proper trajectory. But what happened in that moment, there was a fundamental shift in my posture. I didn't realize it at the time. From there, my workings became trying to appease and gain approval from my managers and other stakeholders in the project. Because, hey, I can't be unemployed again. So all my workings, my striving became, you need to approve of X, Y, and Z. And, and I was failing big time. Number one, I had no experience uh, in, in, in leading a project. But I was failing big time. And one of the, one of the stakeholders was kind enough. Um, he came to me and said, listen, Kuriso, um, if I ask you to do something for me, and you tell me it's going to take you two days, and you don't do it in two days, I'm going to rain on you. But I would ask you, please, I'm begging you, just say it's going to take you five days. I, can't, I, can't, I can hold you to five days. I can only hold you to what you, you tell me to. But I could not listen because, because at the time, like my posture, my mindset was like, I need these people's approval. And the reason why I needed the approval is obviously, number one, in my mind, I thought, oh, I can't be unemployed again. But because I lost sight of God's approval of me and love for me, and that my workings became trying to approve of these people. Uh, Timothy Keller calls it the work beneath the work. There's the surface work, and then there's that work of approval and justification and all the stuff that lies underneath. And that's the work that exhausts you. And, 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 and in my wrestling and trying to make sense, make sense of it all, thankfully, somehow, I was going through Hebrews, and, and the author of Hebrews talks about this rest. There remains a rest for all of God's people. And perhaps I do need that rest. And in wrestling back and forth, you know, you went, I went back to Genesis, or oh, the Sabbath rest and all that stuff. And a question rose to me, is like, actually, hang on a moment. Why did God actually rest from his work? I mean, I thought this guy's not supposed to be tired. He never rests on Sabbath. He's not supposed to be tired. So why did he rest? And in my wrestling, I came to the realization that this deep and profound rest is, is, is God's invitation to, 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 so that you don't have to work for approval. He already approves of you. And I'm invited to this deep, and, this deep Sabbath rest that Jesus paid for, and that all my workings now, as Paul says, I can work out as, as though I was working to the Lord, not to man. And it's not to say that ever since that moment that my doubts now settled, that life was easy, I was on cruise control. Not at all. But I only came to that realization of God's deep, utter, profound Sabbath rest after trying to gain approval and working from other people. But if, if you don't pay attention to that, if you don't strive and wrestle with that, you, you're going to fall apart. Um, and so I think we can go on and on about the various types of things that, um, that can happen or that can cause us to sleep. And, if you, and, and for the most part up until now, I've only been saying these things in the context of religious faith or Christianity. And I think it's true for those of us who do not subscribe to religious faith or Christians, Christianity. Um, you, perhaps you, maybe you are considering Jesus or anything of the sort, but perhaps you actually don't care for religious faith. Now, I think those doubts do exist for non-religious uh, non folks. It may not be as loudly proclaimed in the public square as doubts pertaining to religious faith, but they are there. All of us have doubts. And... 
and, 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 and if you do reject religious faith, if you do say there is no God or whatever the case may be, what often will happen, and in fact it will happen, is that now you have to construct a story to account for the reality of the world. You have to, you have to now find the meaning of life. And, what, and at the moment you say this is the meaning of life, whether it's anchored in religious texts or not, there will be a disconnect between the lived experience, your lived experience, and what you say is real. There will be a disconnect. And those are the doubts. I mean, that's what Ecclesiastes is all about, in part. I've, 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 uh, I don't know if you've heard this. I think I've heard from, from atheists and non-religious folks. They often say that if, if, if we just educate people long enough, we will eradicate injustice. And yet injustice still exists with all the knowledge that we have and about the material world. C.S. Lewis calls it, he says, uh, education without values, in this case values um, in, the religious, in the religious context, in the Christian context, he says, education without values, as useful as it is, seems rather to make men a more clever devil. And so why do you think that this world is supposed to be good? This is in the context of non-belief. Why do you think this world is supposed to be good? What gave you that idea that somehow this world is supposed to be good, that we can be good people? Why should I consider the well-being of others? Just be good to us. I mean, like, honestly, let's take away the reality of a just God and all this stuff. Why should I consider the well-being of others? If evolution teaches that the point of life is to survive, survival of the fittest. A core moral framework of contemporary society is do what you want as long as you don't hurt others. Well, honestly, why should I care if I hurt others? If there is no great judge of the world and the ultimate conclusion of this world is meaninglessness, why should I care to make people happy or sad? I get what I want. Maximize pleasure, minimize pain, whether you like it or not. And I may trend, to be fair, I think, I think because we live in a social age, I may trend and be considered a good person. Oh, look at Kuriso, how good he is. He cares for the needy. But ultimately, death will affect all of us. All of us will end up in meaninglessness. My so-called good deeds and someone's so-called evil deeds are meaningless at the end of it all. It's Ecclesiastes, read Ecclesiastes, as we touched on in, in, uh, in week one. If it came from meaninglessness, why on earth do I think there is meaning in this life? Oh, everyone should just search internally and find their own meaning in life. You will find it. I mean, don't get me wrong. You will find it. But you can't prove it. You can't place it under a microscope and derive some sort of mathematical formula to prove its authenticity. We're all on the same boat here, religious or non-religious. Christopher Hitchens, he was a British author, author and journalist, and he wrote a number of books. He was in the elk of your uh, Richard Dawkins. And he died in 2011, and uh, at his funeral, or rather at his memorial service, uh, a number of his close colleagues and friends came, obviously, as you would when, 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 a, when a loved one dies, um, to honor his life. And how they did it, they, they, um, they honored his life by reading an excerpt of his work that they found compelling. So person A would come up and say, oh, Christopher Hitchens and this, and I found it very compelling, and all that stuff. But one of his friends, came up, I forget his name, his name wasn't actually accounted for in the book that I read. Um, one of his friends stood up and shared this about Christopher Hitchens. He says, all atheists can live for long 
can't live for long just being against something, in this case, God. They have to speak for what makes life worth living. And in the couple conversations I had with Hitch, I felt this was staring in his mind. So here's an atheist or a guy who has constructed a successful life rejecting Christianity and religious faith in general. In his private moments, he's wrestling with the meaning of life. Alan uh, DeBotton, he's also a British philosopher, he wrote a book called uh, uh, Religion for Atheists. And, and I, often, I don't say this about a lot of books that I read, but honestly, it was horrible. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I think the content is, 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 the point he's trying to make is valid. Um, but in it, he's trying to construct some sort of meaning, as the title suggests, for, uh, uh, some sort of meaning of life for those who are atheists or agnostics. And he does that by tra- taking various aspects of different religious faiths, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and, and taking these aspects and constructing what life, what the meaning of life for, for atheists. You have to find meaning somewhere. You're not going to hear this in the public square that atheists are supposed to find meaning in life. But they do. And the moment they do, doubts will arise if they pay attention. So we're all on the same boat here. Whatever story you construct, you can't prove it, scientifically at least. It's all sinking sand. But then I think, I think to, this may be all doom and gloom and all that jazz stuff, but then when these experiences of doubt do come along, how do we navigate them? You know, how do you move about these experiences to try and find some sort of resolution, as Lewis did, and thankfully in some, in, in, in some miraculous way I did with that particular story? How do, you, how, how, do you, how do you move around those moments? And I think Asaf does two things. Well, there's more, I think, but there's two things that I want to point out. The first thing that he does, he goes to the temple. Now, in verse 16 to 17, it reads as follows. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a worrisome task to me until I went into the temple, into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. until I went into the sanctuary of God. Whenever these experiences of doubt come along, we need a community of faith to wrestle them with. That's what Asaf did. In fact, before that he says, when I, when I tried to make sense of all of these things, it was a worrisome task. It's exhausting trying to make sense of life and navigate these doubts by yourself. And you know it. You've been through it. It's exhausting. And that's what Asaf says here. You, and you know, there's, you may, there's a juxtaposition. You may have been, um, you may have tried to make sense of these things. You went to the church, uh, and and you were hurt. You were dismissed, as I mentioned earlier in the opening. Um, but the contrast or the juxtaposition to that is that the same the same church or in, the same church that hurt you when you were trying to make sense is the same church that you will find answers in. Maybe a different community, but, but you can't make sense of doubts without a community of faith. That's, uh, I think, a while ago, I, I, I don't know if it was earlier this year or last year, there was, you know, we did a sermon series called The Church. In part, that's what I was wrestling with, like this community of faith. How do you become part of this community of faith and navigate life? I think if you need to revisit it, you, you should. And, and, and 
uh, there's a there's a guy, one of my friends, you know, I, I mentioned that the book that I loathed or that I thought was ridiculous. There's also another book that I found brilliant in this case. Um, his name is Alan Jacobs, and he wrote a little book called How to Think. And in it, obviously, exploring the, the nature of thinking, he actually has, uses, a, uses a phrase that at the time I did not know, which I found very compelling. He calls it the art of thinking instead of the science of thinking. And in it, um, he says this point about people who claim to think for themselves, or you can think alone, or things like that. He says, you don't start thinking for yourself. You start thinking with different people. To think independently of other human beings is impossible. And if it, and if it were possible, it would be undesirable. Thinking is necessarily thoroughly and wonderfully social. Everything you think is a response to what someone else has thought and said. And when you commend, and when you commend someone for thinking for themselves, and, or rather, when people commend someone for thinking for themselves, they usually mean ceasing to, to sound like people I dislike and starting to, sound like more, starting to sound like more like people I approve of. You don't think for yourself. Whatever, whatever, whatever meaning of life or answers that you have, you didn't construct those answers. Someone else, just do a basic search of history, someone else has found those answers before you. And someone else has influenced you, whether you're aware of it or not. So this whole idea that you can figure things out by yourself is impossible. It's re it really is impossible. And, and that's why we need a community of faith to come wrestle with these subjects, with these difficulties, so that we can navigate these periods of doubt. And I think renewal fellowship, in part why we're doing this series, is so that renewal fellowship can become that community of faith, that you can bring your questions, your doubts, your difficulties, and perhaps we don't have the answers, but we will wrestle with them together. Jude, in, in Jude chapter 20 to 22, it says this, but, dear friends, by, by your building yourselves up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. So there will be people who come in here who have questions, and those of us who are secure in the particular moment, we need to have mercy on those who doubt. You can't just dismiss people, folks, and say, you know, pull up your socks and, and figure it out. It's not going to work. You're just going to destroy them. Church hurt. The second thing that he does is he compares footholds. And, um, yeah, the second thing he does, he compares footholds. Uh, when, when I mentioned the story of, you know, walking to the bus stop. Uh, when you are walking to the bus stop and, and it's raining and it's muddy and all those sort of stuff, um, if, if your parents is not with you to hold your hand, you obviously have to try and find, make sure that you get to the bus stop as, as safely as possible without slipping. And part of that thing would be, you've got obviously the road, which is a bit muddy and all that jazz and stuff, and then you have the grassy areas, the grassy patches. You would try to walk in those grassy patches because your foot is secure and then the chances of slipping are low. It's not to say you won't sleep, but the chances of slipping are low. And I think that's what Asaf is doing here. He's comparing footholds. Where should I step? How should I navigate these moments? Uh, verse, verse 18 and 19. Truly you set them in slippery places. Notice the contrast. I nearly slipped. Now truly, as, as, he, as he's comparing footholds, truly, tr uh, verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. And then verse, verse um, 27. Uh, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. 
you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Now he recognizes, in Israel, he recognizes that, in fact, sure, I have a problem here. But as I navigate the world, as I navigate the reality around me and my belief, there's a tension here. But if I look at the bigger story, there will be at some point where God deals with injustice. Now, do I want to be, uh, do I want to be uh, uh, an unbeliever or something like that in, in this current moment, in this reality? Or do I want to be found in God when he actually does deal with these issues? That's what he's doing. He's comparing the whole story. He's not just looking at the particular moment. But he only gets there after wrestling. He only gets there after wrestling. Um, again, um, if you are not a follower of Christ and you are wrestling with these things, I do want, uh, it's, not, it's not in this particular song, but I do want to point out something that's worth considering when you are wrestling with these questions and before, as you sleep and before you decide to leave the faith. Because a major problem in, in, in religious faith or in faith based on this text, particularly Christianity, oftentimes that, oh, the stories are, of course, of course, uh, this, the stories are false. You know, it's a whole bunch of old white men trying to gain some sort of political power over you, blah, blah, blah. Now, I do want you to consider this. We are reading Psalm 73, a story about a person who's doubting, and it's in the Bible. It's not outside the Bible. The stories about people who are doubting are in the Bible. The Bible contains within itself stories of people who are wrestling various emotional, psychological, and physical turmoils before God. They don't go anywhere else. They go before God. The Psalms, this book, the Psalms, is filled with laments and complaints that people lay before God. God is not scared of your questions. The way Psalm 88 ends. Darkness is my friend. That's before, that's, he's saying it before God. Like, God, oh, darkness is my friend. It's before God. He doesn't go write a thesis or something like that. These are not external sources. These are texts within the Bible itself. Uh, a lady, Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, O'Connor she wrote a book called uh, Lamentations and the Tears of the World. And uh, as, you know, as she's exploring the nature of the book of Lamentations. And um, she wrote something which has found this whole point, I think I got it from her when she wrote that book of Lamentations and Tears of the World. She wrote this, she, she the, book, the book of Lamentation, obviously, it's, it's a communal and lament of the Israelites. So Israel, after they were besieged, and, and Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonians, um, there are people obviously now suffering because of that. And all these people are writing these poems, or rather they are lamenting everything before God. Now, the peculiar thing about this book is that if you read the whole lamentation, God never actually responds to them. You won't find a single word that God utters to them. And not because, not because he thinks lowly of them or anything of the sort, but because he's honoring their pain and suffering and laments. This is in Lamentations. This is in the Bible, rather. He's laying pride of place to their laments. He doesn't dismiss them. He honors their pain by staying silent. Now, I, for many times, I think some of you may know this, I know my sister will know this, is that oftentimes when people lay their complaints or difficulties before me, I am quick to try and give a response on the way that should happen. Like, oh, just do this, just do that. God remains silent in their difficulties honoring their questions, honoring their suffering, honoring their laments. 
Asaf, as I mentioned, he's responsible for the next 10 poems. From, from Psalm 73 to all the way to Psalm 83, those are all Asaf's poems. And just, just read the, the range of emotional complexity that he's wrestling with. And everything is happening before God. It's in the Bible. None of these folks are trying to dupe you. They're not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. If they were, this is a very pathetic attempt. Peter, uh, let's go in Peter, Second Peter 3.18, he says, 15 to 16 rather, let me read from there. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as it does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. This is Peter, the one whom God said, I will build my church. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. He's not trying to dupe you. He's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. God is not afraid of your questions. None of the biblical authors are trying to paint a false image of, about reality. And so where do we go from here? We know how to navigate doubts. We know how to make... Oh, we're learning how to navigate doubts. Where do you go from here? This psalm, or this prayer, is a reminder that the Bible does not call us to a blind faith, as many in our cultural moment tend to believe. It calls us to acknowledge our questions and bring them before Jesus. He is not scared of them. Doubts will come along the way, and there is space to ventilate and interrogate these doubts. And if we do... We can be called deep. We can we can go deeper into seeing who God really is. These doubts don't have to be a stumbling block. But if but they can be a launch pad into into a deeper understanding of who God is, and trusting in who He is. Think through this text. Wrestle with this text. After Jesus rose from the dead, in John 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 chapter twenty. Jesus rises from the dead and he presents himself to the disciples. And Thomas was, mis- was, uh, was not part of the disciples. And the disciples go to Thomas and say, hey, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas says to them, uh, yeah. Unless I, put, unless I see his hands and the, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark, into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, yeah, I'm not going to believe you all. This is someone who was with Jesus for three years. He heard everything that Jesus said. He says, yeah, guys, sorry, I don't believe you. And then a few days later, Jesus comes to, you know, all the disciples are together in one room. Jesus presents himself, says, hey, peace be with you. Hey, Thomas, put your finger here. Hey, see my hands. And place it on the side. Don't believe, but, dis- but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This is Jesus honoring Thomas's questions. Doesn't dismiss them. Jesus is not dismissing your questions, your doubts. Thomas, interrogate me. Interrogate the reason Jesus. You have questions? Interrogate them. And then he said something which, which uh, while I was preparing for this, I found really profound for the first time. In verse 29, he says, Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus, after Thomas's doubting, pronounces a blessing on us. For those who, have not, who believe but have not seen the physical risen Jesus yet. Earlier on in the, in the book of John, uh, when Jesus was starting his ministry, John chapter 1, um, a similar kind of story happens. Um, you know, Jesus is calling the disciples and he calls Philip and says, Hey, Philip, follow me. This is in John chapter 1, verse 46 to, 43 to 46. He says, Hey, Philip, follow me. And Philip, okay, followed him. And then at some point, Philip finds Nathaniel and said, Hey, Nathaniel, we found... We have found of him whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the Messiah, Samuel. We've been waiting all this time. We found the Messiah. And Nathan says, ah, oh, dude, seriously? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you for real right now? And look at, look at Philip's response. He says, come and see. Come and see. And I think that's the call today without questions and doubts. Come and see. Do you have questions? Jesus opens, up, opens himself up for interrogation. You're not a believer? Come and see. No, nobody's trying to dupe you. Nobody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Come and see. Wrestle with this text. Wrestle with this faith. And if, if you are not a believer, you know, I think there will be people after the service who are going to pray with you and wrestle with those questions. You can ask them the questions. And that's what renewal wants to be. Come and see. Come and see the reason Messiah. He's not scared of your questions. Let's pray. Messiah Jesus, you said everyone who hears your words and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Lord Jesus, the rains and floods of doubt will come upon our lives, and perhaps expose the foundations of our lives. Instead of being discouraged and walking away, may we take courage from Asaph and lean into the church, your body. And as Paul prayed, to perceive the depth, the height, the width of your love for us. You have the words of eternal life, Lord Jesus. May our hearts be open to hear and build our lives on them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.